Chinese Development Cooperation in Asia and the Pacific is growing rapidly through the Belt and Road Initiative, expanding partnerships with civil society, increased multilateral efforts, and the establishment of a dedicated development cooperation agency in 2018. In this keynote panel at the 2019 Australasian Aid Conference, Chinese experts shared their insights on the rationale, aspirations and challenges of Chinese development cooperation. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Anthea Mulakala. I'm with the Asia Foundation. I'm one of the co-conveners of the conference, and I'm really delighted to welcome you to this session on Chinese development cooperation. It's really difficult to have a discussion about 21st century development cooperation without the mention of China. Since the start of the conference, yesterday and today, uh, I've heard many references. Some are blatant and direct. China, 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 it's all about China. Others are indirect and more generalized references to the non-traditional partners. And there's also metaphorical references. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. China indeed is a force that is challenging our assumptions, principles, and practice of aid and development cooperation. Our keynote speaker this morning, Dr. Donald Kabaruka, noted that Africa, Africa the continent, is often described using generalized and overly simplistic narratives. China faces the same treatment. So the aim of our session today is to provide some clarity and nuance to the China and development cooperation story in a few key areas. So we'll be talking about the, the Belt and Road Initiative, We'll be talking about China's institutional architecture for development cooperation, China's engagement in the Pacific around development cooperation, and also how China's working with civil society and the corporate sector. So our panel, uh, I'll start on my left. Uh, Ji Hongbo is our country representative with the Asia Foundation uh, in Beijing. Xu uh, Li Zhu is uh, Vice Dean of the China Institute for South-South Cooperation in Agriculture. She's also Professor of the College of Humanities and Development Studies at China Agricultural University. Jihang Jia is the Re Research Fellow, uh, International Economics and Finance Institute, which is part of the Ministry of Finance in China. And on the end, Yujia Shen, who is also a research fellow and academic at the National Center for Oceana Studies at the School of International Relations at Sun Yat-sen University. So we will kick off with a discussion on the BRI. The Belt and Road Initiative is now five years old, and BRI is much more than a grand infrastructure initiative. The Economic and Infrastructure Corridor is designed by China to promote development, trade and connectivity, policy coordination, financial integration, and also people-to-people -people links. At the last count, the BRI had 71 countries involved. At the same time, there's a lot of positive things about the BRI. So it, it evokes feelings of promise, of pessimism, of excitement, as well as fear. Jinghang. Uh, <laughs> How do you respond to that? No, uh, is China, after five years, it's, a, it's an important, important milestone for China. Uh, is China doing a stock take on the BRI of what's going well and what can be approved? And in, in your perspective, what do you think is working and what isn't? Well, thank you, Anthea. And first, of, I would like to say thank you for having me here and inviting me. And it's an honor to be here. 
And as you all know that uh, the China proposed a Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, and it's been five years. And of course, in the past five years from my observation that the BRI has gained enormous, enormous support from the international community, and we have made a significant progress. And you mean domestically right now, from the top policymakers to the academia area and all kinds of stock taking and assessment. And regarding the, the project, the, pro, uh, the progress and achievement and experience and even the lessons and from the past five years are being conducted in China. And so I would like to share two like, official events with you. So last August, there was a symposium was held by Chinese President Xi Jinping and marking the fifth anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. And the very recent one is last month, and a meeting was held by the Vice Premier Han Zheng. He is the head of the leading group of the advancing BRI work in China. And this meeting, was, uh, both of the meetings summarized the previous work we have done, and also they made plans for the future steps, what we're gonna do. So from those two meetings, they have summarized what have, what have been we are achieving for five years, and those achievements you know, can be me measured by some numbers, like I would like to also share with you. So like for the past five years, there were, you said 71 countries were involved, and actually we have signed more than 100 countries, and as I recall, like 22, I mean 29 international organizations have signed some like MOU, or cooperate agreement with the Chinese government. And the, the cumulative trade volume for, in goods between China and participating BRI countries are over like five trillion US dollars. And there are also China's FDI to those participating countries are surpassed like 80, 80 billion US dollars. And we also create like more than 80 uh, economic uh, economic developing zones, and those are creating at the member at the number I remember it's 240,000 jobs in the local community. So uh, there are also many other numbers I can share with you. Like there are huge uh, uh, amount of like uh, significant projects that along the Belt and Road Initiative, including the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, and. I won't list all of those actually. So like another major event that taking place for the past five years, it's in 2017 that we held the first high level seminar on BRI, which uh, is participated by 20, 29 uh, state leaders. And a lot of um, achievements and official documents were released on that forum. And some of those outcomes has become concrete projects already. So, of course, we have seen those enormous uh, achievements, but like we're still doing researches, and we know that China is learning by doing. And so we, we know that there are, of course, some challenges that are associated with the BRI. And the first thing I would like to mention is filling the infrastructure gap. And we know that there is a huge infrastructure, uh, I mean, gap between the infrastructure needs and the investment. And we, we can reference numbers from ADB or either a lot of uh, international organizations to have those kind of estimation. And I think I remember the number from ADB, it's by 2020. And even for the Asian countries, 
and the infrastructure need every year, it's 776 billion US dollars. But the gap is 180 billion US dollars. And so like China is trying to build a diversified financing mechanism for BRI, since BRI countries is the most in, need, in the most need in, of infrastructure. But we, we know that China it's, it can be the only country to, to doing this, and we, we would like to create some kind of partnership with all the countries to participate and to invest, to mobilize more resources to do this. And, but that takes a lot of work, actually. Mm -hmm. And another thing I want to mention is for the past, past five years, and we also noticed that um, there are a lot of entities taking part into it, like most of them are cooperations. But we noticed that some cooperations, or we say companies, they did not fully follow international rules or standards, we say. And even some projects are using the title of BRI and take advantage of it. And I think that indicates that um, there's like super supervision mechanisms need to be further improved. And I think China is willing to do this with international community. We would like to do this with local people and media and we all together to, to, to identify those projects and to set higher standards and regulations to those projects. That's also another next step we're gonna do in the future, I think. And the third thing I want to understand, I want to say it's, uh, I, I, which I think it's the most urgent one, it's we need better communication with other others, all the stakeholders actually. And because China needs to explain itself better just like you mentioned, and there are criticisms, there are people are care so much, like you guys, I think you, thank you so much for interested in China's development policy. And there are criticisms, and I think China, a lot of recommendations actually from uh, Western think tanks, mm -hmm. and which is very helpful for us. So we're willing to take it. And, but the thing is, there are still a lot of stereotypes and misunderstandings even by culture, by history, or even the language. So I think China needs to do better to explain itself and to communicate with each other, and specifically to take further step on the policy communication and to the area, to the people-to-people -people exchange. So those are the three things that I think that we're gonna do next, but like, uh, let's, let me back to those uh, policy makers meeting. And I think next thing that China, it's taking a step to, it's to focusing on the high quality and the high standard of developing the infrastructure projects and which can deliver real benefits to the local people. And so Chinese policymakers realize that the general framework has been established. Like there's a macro level pathway of BRS has been pretty clear, but there also need some details and some specific areas that need to be fine tuned. So I think that's our next plan for, for the future. And I, I think there will be more policy released by the, because we're gonna have a second high level meetings this, this year. So I think you guys will see more policies or coming up very soon. Great. I'm going to throw a really sensational issue at you. Probably the most sensationalized sure. issue around the BRI is around debt. Um, 
So how would you respond to the comment that the BRI is a debt trap for partner countries? Just look at Sri Lanka, for example. So how do you deal with, with uh, accusations like that? Thanks for the question. It's, it's a really good one. I think you right, right. I saw it on the news, and I think it's worth noting. Well, well, I, I think I'm going to respond into diff, from different perspectives. Like first, from the government policymakers' perspective, that uh, from the beginning, the Chinese government has realized the importance of financial sustainability and debt sustainability. And there was a guiding principle and of financing the BRI that was endorsed by, including China, like 27 countries uh, endorsed the guiding principle. And there was a specific term regarding the debt stability, uh, sustainability. And so, I mean, the government aware, it's an it's a important issue to be noticed. And what has China done, it's one thing, it's we work closely with MDBs because we believe they have the enormous experience and they have those international standards and rules and even the safeguards that accepted by the international community. So like on the first summit, I think we signed MOU with six MDBs and they are willing to participate in it. And another thing we do, it's uh, we do tri-party cooperation. And I think we were, we're willing to cooperate with, with advanced economy, even including Australia, because you guys have a lot of experience and you are expertise. And China, it's, I would say, um, a newcomer to this international development area. So we have signed some tri-party cooperation agreement with um, Japan, Singapore, uh, France, and Canada. I believe, uh, as far as I know, those four. So I, I think we're eager to have Australia get into it, and we, we can have uh, tri-party cooperation in the countries along the Belt and Road Initiative, which can help China to realize the high standard of the infrastructure project. And well, another thing, it's from the economic more economic perspective if we're talking about that issue. And we, well, you mentioned Sri Lanka, but there was a report that released by the Sri Lanka Central Bank that only, well, among all the foreign debt in the Sri Lanka's portfolio, that only more than a little bit 10% is from China. It, the rate, it's, the percentage is even lower than Japan, actually. And so we, I would say that, well, China, it's definitely not the, the, the cause or the driver of the, the increase of the debt, debt problem. And so another thing I want to mention is where we kind of should see the debt problem in a more dynamic way. Because, you know, well, you know, from China's experience in the early stage of the, the development, and we borrowed a lot of money from World Bank. And we, we, we used it as uh, to build the infrastructure, and specifically for the high-speed railway. And you, you know, the infrastructure projects, projects has a really long return maturity. And so like, we invested a lot, we borrowed a lot, but it turns out that it has a huge spillover effect to the growth of Chinese economy. So I, I think we should use those dynamic ways to see it, uh, that for the Belt and Road participating countries. And we, we can see that if we select the right projects, 
and that they will create huge economic benefits to their economic growth. Okay, thanks. Another new development in China, which is fairly recent, is um, the establishment of the China International Development Cooperation Agency, SIDCA. Uh, it's interesting that China established this agency because Western countries tend to be merging their previously discrete agencies that were managing international development assistance. Uh, Richard did a stock take on that yesterday uh, for Australia, into, into their ministries of foreign affairs. Asian countries are doing the opposite, you know, setting up new apparatus to manage the growth and expansion of their cooperation programs. Uh, Xu Li, tell us a little bit about, about SIDCA. So how will China's international development cooperation policies and practices change now that you have this new institution or this new structure in place? Thank you. Can you hear me, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, actually, I'm very happy to be sitting here. And uh, once you are sitting here, it means that you are interested in the topic. And once we have interest for communication, I think the world will not be bad. You know? <laughs> it will be better. And uh, first of all, I should uh, say that uh, with increasing China's overseas engagement, what another kind of phenomenon we should also notice is that internally in China, the different people, they have a different opinions as well. You know, even today we have like a think tank for government. We have two professors from university. We have, you know, international organization working in China. And four of us are ladies, you know, not men. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. <laughs> But we still, we, you can feel that we will still have a very different perspective about the story of BRI and of also about China development cooperation. So that's where I start. And uh, uh, so that's why when I put my uh, argument or my opinion, we should really be aware that which is from the data or from the facts and which are my personal uh, opinion, my personal experience, based on my experience. Uh, so when you're talking about uh, the role and um, also the probably the relationship of the newly established agency to mm -hmm. BRI mm -hmm. and also the news, if I put it from the website, official website, you can see it clearly, both in Chinese and in English, that it was established in the early of this year, uh, last year actually, already one year passed. And it's for uh, the two purposes. One is to promote or uh, serve as the uh, big diplomacy of China. And secondly, also jointly establish or jointly construct a built road uh, uh, initiative. But what does that mean? <laughs> or play with Chinese words. So, um, and uh, its roles, you also observe from the website, you can see that its roles including policy planning and the project designing, mm -hmm. and secondly, provide advisors to China's development policies or related issues. And thirdly, to provide supervision and evaluation, and also uh, provide some kind of a partnership so from all those words, you can see, yes, that's right. All the things are very right, right? But what does that mean? I really cannot understand. <laughs> that's always happens. 
But in my personal, so following coming my personal interpretation, mm -hmm. because we have submitted a proposal, policy proposal for China to establish the agency since 2013. And uh, since that, we continue every year. And so last year, 2008, we are so happy <laughs> to see that it was established. But of course, not only us, I think many, many think tanks, many, many academia professors, they submit a different version of uh, this new agency establishment. But in our uh, research and designing, uh, we say that uh, except those very brief interpretation, very brief description of the function of the, uh, the CITICA, we actually would like it to be to provide public goods to supposed to be provided by the new agency along the Belt Road countries. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this is, and also to solve the fragmentation issue. Because you know that in China, aid was provided or involved almost 40 different, um, you know, different organizations, ministers, departments, like a Minister of Commerce, foreign, uh, you know, the, the foreign uh, aid a, a, a department pro, uh, to, be responsible for coordination, but the Minister of Health be responsible to provide health um, aid. Ministry of Agriculture also responsible in providing you know, aid in agriculture. And also the Bank of People's Bank providing you know, like a multi-collaboration, uh, uh, collaboration with multiple banks. So, and uh, you know, lots lots of uh, 40, more than 40. So fragmentation and uh, lack of coordination is, was always claimed by the problem. So that's why we post it again and again to say, in the new year, particularly when you increase your, um, your, your, your scheme of foreign aid, you need to think strateg strategically of the way, of the role of the uh, China aid. So, um, so now we find a new way. When a Belt Road initiative come out, we say, okay, that's very good. You know, all the countries, I think almost 70% uh, of the country along the Belt Road, they are really in the, uh, they are basically in agriculture. Many of them are in the poverty. So development issue is always the very important issue. So we say that along the Belt Road, we should provide you know, public goods and uh, the new agency will be a very approach to, to do this. So, so that's a kind of an interpretation. Mm -hmm. And also someone was asking, why you put this diplomacy and uh, Belt Road? What does that mean? Mm. And probably, you know, uh, 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 you mentioned about uh, uh, official or, or statement about Belt Road. But actually, we can see that the economic cooperation will be the main element for Belt Road. It's not like, uh, oh, China has agenda behind or, or, you know, according to my own observation, sometimes they are fragmentation and they are, you know, still struggling what, what we do. But for economic cooperation, that would be for development is the main aim of Belt Road. But diplomacy, it's like a, some kind of, a, you know, another perspective, like a political or, 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 or other national interest. So from a national interest or from public goods, from, for global development, we come in together and the aid could be uh, provided archive for that. So that's my interpretation. Thanks. Okay.
You mentioned quite a few times, you know, you said we were pushing for years to try to get the establishment of an agency. So I want to ask you a little bit more about what you mean by we. So your, I know China Agricultural University has been a really active um, actor <laughs> in China on development cooperation, informing policy, informing practice for a long time. And recently, you've set up the South-South Cooperation Institute. What's the, what's the role and the mandate of the institute, and how does it help kind of shape uh, development policy in, in China? Thank you for your question. <laughs> it seems to give me an opportunity to introduce my organization. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you can see from my introduction, I actually from a China Institute for South-South Cooperation in Agriculture. Actually, we have another name. The name is mean, uh, the Belt Road Institute for Agriculture Cooperation. Mm -hmm. So many of, many of you would ask, what does that mean? You have two names. Mm -hmm. Actually, we only have a team, but they have two names because it's the fact that in China we realize that when we communicate with our international friends, South-South cooperation would be a, a good name to communicate, particularly with uh, United Nations organizations and all those academic. Um, but for internally, communicate with ministers, and in China, uh, currently, we're using Belt Road. That would be better. Because in South-South Cooperation, you can find lots of different departments. They're all responsible for South-South Cooperation. So we don't know how to coordinate. So you can see the story even before a name. But for our, uh, for our organization, it, even it was newly established in the uh, December of 2017, actually we start our studies and practices in international development since the 1980s. So you mentioned that China is a newcomer for international development. Maybe I didn't agree with you. Because China provides aid since 1950s. And even before that, China also a very uh, big uh, aid receipt since the 1978, end of 1970s and 1980s particularly. And so at that time, our organization, at that time, we have a name called Center for Integrated Agricultural Development. It was provided originally by Germany. And so they provide aid to China to establish this kind of institute to provide technical assistance for those foreign aid projects in China. So our partners will be United Nations, all those different agencies, and also bilateral organizations like DFID or UCID or CID, you know, CIDA, all these different, and also in, uh, um, NGOs like Ford Foundations and WWF, you know, all those. So that's make us a very value assets. Like we understand how the international development projects were designed and operated in China's context. And since 2007, even earlier, I think, the leader of our uh, team, Pro uh, Professor Li Xiaoyun, he is uh, very active in the international development cooperation policies and researchers. And he realized uh, suddenly a new phenomenon came. He was always invited by some dark countries, researchers as well, and the policymakers to see, would you please to provide some advices on how DACA and China can work together 
to provide uh, you know trilateral uh, aid to other country to in to for example for example in Africa country. So that will make us very, you know, make him very surprised and say, okay, we need to change. We need to shift our knowledge production folks. We need to focus in, we need to understand how China's <coughs> development aid in other countries. Even though that China's impractically, uh, it was uh, initially uh, since 1940s, 1980s. But the studies on China's aid is very, 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 you know, shortage. Uh, even in my 2004, when I just started my work, I remember that I organized a workshop and invited officials from, you know, minister to say, okay, would you like to introduce China aid to our Germany audience? And then we feel like, okay, no, 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 that's, that's a secret. And how could you <laughs> talk about aid? So today, I feel it's really good. Mm. It's a progress that we can talk about China's aid. And um, so that's a progress I can see. So from this process, you can see that we established this uh, uh, organization to, to see that we change from uh, uh, just on the introducing in foreign aid in China to how China aid other countries. So you can see from the knowledge flow from uh, introducing in to going out. And uh, uh, we have uh, four modalities. The first one is to, uh, to provide what we call the new development knowledge mm -hmm. because I know that many professors sitting here, so I'm so sorry to see, but I'm really curious to see whether in the transformative global landscape, we really can provide a new knowledge for development. You know, we have to challenge our existing wisdom. And uh, secondly, uh, because we are university, so we are much more open and a neutral way to organize a policy dialogue. Some of the dialogue will be happened in the United Nations. Some of the dialogue will be happened just in the field of Tanzania, for instance, last year. And thirdly, we also train, because we are universities, so we have, a, uh, we have a, the advantage to train young talents, particularly for the youth leadership, leaders along the Belt Road. And lastly, but also it's a very unique way, is we not only publish, we also provide the development of projects. We put ourselves into a practitioner to see working jointly with local government officials. For example, in Tanzania, our project has been implemented for almost one, uh, 10 years. And we're now in the third phase. And the project is just to provide a community-based poverty reduction joint learning center. So it's not saying that all the Chinese Development projects are big scale. This morning I heard about that. They are also smaller, but also based on the community. And we're, we're working with them. And at the first stage, we're just introducing a simple labor-intensive technology to improve their maize productivity. And after four or five years, we realized that the local government capacity is the most important. Mm -hmm. So right now, we're working with local government, with local university professors, and also the local communities. The three of them are coming together to create synergies for local 
uh, initiate development. For just I sitting here, three of my colleagues are in the field in the Tanzania, and we see them in the WeChat, <laughs> how they working together. <laughs> so I'm I'm yeah. sorry, probably time is too long. But no, if later, if we have more time, we can communicate about this project. Mm -hmm. So that's all the project we calling it for peer to peer. Uh, sharing mm -hmm. for development. Mm -hmm. So that's our new idea for new development knowledge. Thank you, Shuli. I think you really gave us a good overview of, of really how diverse the kind of academic and institutional capacity is in China, how long it's existed. Uh, and there are so many institutions, actually, that are contributing academic research. Um, also, a lot of your comments just now would be very applicable to the, the session earlier today on applied research, and I think a lot of the work that your institute is doing really fits in, into that kind of framework. Yes. I'm going to turn to the Pacific now, uh, Yujia. China will or has uh, surpassed Australia as the largest development partner in the Pacific region with approximately $4 billion. You can correct me if I'm wrong there, pledged last year. And although Australian aid and Chinese aid focus on different sectors, China's increasing footprint has concerned many Australian observers uh, who worry about Australia's declining influence in the region, increasing debt and dependence uh, for partner countries in the region, and that Australia is being squeezed out of the, of the Pacific by China. Uh, and that the approach by China seems to be more competitive than collaborative. So I'd like to ask you, maybe you could help clarify or demystify for us, what is China's approach in the Pacific? All right, thank you for your question. Um, first, um, I would like to say that I think China has surpassed the US, but maybe not Australia. So, um, okay. yeah. Um, the first question, the first statement I want to address is that China's engagement with South Pacific, um, I have to say, in the last decade has been surging. Mm -hmm. But um, in general, if I ask anyone in China, do you know Papua New Guinea? If I just randomly ask, the answer would be no. So last year, I attended an international relations conference in China at Tsinghua University, which is a very high-level academic meeting happens every year in Tsinghua. And that was the first year that Tsinghua, um, that conference had a panel on South Pacific. For all those, those years, that conference has been holding. So, and also, when my colleague learned that I'm going to do studies about South Pacific, they were, they were asking me, how are you going to get your paper published in China? <laughs> so, um, well, I think this is a general sense about how, how much China know about South Pacific. So then I'm going to move to the question about how's China's engagement with, South Pacific, with the Pacific area in general. I think if we understand China's Pacific policy in a more broader framework, then maybe we'll get a sense um, more objective. Um, I think first is that China actually calls the South Pacific as the great peripheral country. So um, in 2013, China held a great um, peripheral foreign meetings. It's a very high level meetings on foreign policy, all those standing committee attended the meeting and the ambassadors due to the Big countries attended that meeting, and on that meeting, they proposed the concept of peripheral um, diplomacy. 
And at that meeting, they clarified four regions as great per, um, peripheral region, and that included um, Southeast Asia, um, South Asia, and um, the, the West Asia. But then um, later on, they added two regions in that. One is South Pacific. Okay, so um, that, that generated a huge um, debate among a lot of Chinese scholars. They said, why? Why would you put that in? And the debate is still going on now. And also, I think another um, important background to understand China's South Pacific policy is South-South uh, cooperation. When I traveled to Papua New Guinea and traveled around Pacific, I talked to some of the ambassadors from China, and they said, well, China views its relations with the South Pacific countries as South-South cooperation, and it has been essential to China's foreign policy. Um, but I say that, I think, from my observation, China's um, policy towards um, the Pacific or its South-South cooperation with the Pacific is no different from it is with other South cooperation partners. So it's not like, you know, I don't think, I, I personally don't believe there's a huge agenda behind it. I see it more as a general um, foreign policy goal. And of course, the third one that it's, um, why is China so interested in the Pacific? If anything, I want to say that as a geopolitical goal that China always set is the Taiwan and China unification. And the Pacific has eight countries um, that has diplomatic relations with China, and it has one-third of Taiwan's allies or diplomatic relations partner in that region. So I think definitely there is um, some engagement of China with those countries trying to win more partners and friends, and I think that's one, that's one of the another reasons that China is, is interested in the region. I think that's it, like more for like a, because I, I always wanted to um, understand the Pacific policy in a general, broader sense of China's foreign policy as a whole, rather than looking at it. Because Pacific to China is relatively small in size. So, yeah. Thanks. Looking ahead. Uh, do you see the engagement, China's engagement in the Pacific? Do you see that there's opportunities for collaboration with Australia? Um, okay. So that the relationship moves from one that's perceived to be competitive to one that is more cooperative or collaborative. Okay, um, I want to address that question. Um, before I want to address that question, I want to talk briefly about China's, um, um, Chinese activity in the Pacific. So. Um, I've been, I went to Papua New Guinea for three times last year, and um, um, I, I started to look at the history of how China has been engaging with the Pacific. And I think the first wave starts ver started very early on, even before World War II. So, and that was a small group from the south part of China, like from Fuji and Guangdong province, and they went and they started to build those retail businesses. And then the second wave, I think, started in, um, at the beginning of the 2010, and where you see all those state-owned enterprises started mm -hmm. to go in. And I think that attracted a lot of attention mm -hmm. because those ones are big, <laughs> these are big, big companies and they brought funds and they brought projects. And a lot of those SOEs went in there because of China's aid program 
started to go in that region. And then the, when they got there, they found business opportunities, and then they started to bring their partners back from home and to go into the market. And I think the third wave is coming now. So I say that the emerging interest from the private sectors in China um, in, into the Pacific, because I have been getting a lot of consultations from the private sectors in because I'm based in Guangzhou, and if, um, as you may know, that a lot of the companies that are operating in the Pacific are from um, Guangdong province, and a lot of them, the private sectors one, uh, and they are from Shenzhen. So those are the, I think those are the ones that are, that are getting more involved in the Pacific investment, um, more for commercial interests. So, I mean, like when we're talking about the collaboration and all that, I think it's just not talking about the, you know, the government-to-government -government collaboration. It's also about the cooperation between different sectors and the different, on different levels. Um, so, I definitely say, um, I hope I'm not too naive, but I definitely say that um, there are cooperations, um, chances between China and um, and in countries, partners who's interested in the development of the Pacific. And also, I think, there, um, I think Australia is shifting its aid projects into the infrastructure sector, which is very different from the approach that Australia used to have with the Pacific, because back in the, um, maybe just before the last year, Australia had a lot of, um, invest, uh, a lot of aid projects that goes into the governance, uh, education, and health. And I think they are starting to making a shift to the infrastructure. And I think, um, I hope that there would be some cooperation between China and Australia on that sector. I was asked a question by a colleague, and um, I would like to pro propose that question here, if anyone is interested in the answer, is that, um, do you think it's possible that China builds a road and then Australia maintains the road? <laughs> And okay, so um, and then the second one is um, the second one I've heard that is uh, uh, the trilateral project that's already operating in Papua New Guinea um, is a malaria project. Um, it's working very well, and I think it has generated a lot of positive feedback. So I mean, there are successful examples. So. I definitely see the possibility. At least it's worth trying, right? <laughs> and I think um, the, the, um, another thing that I want to talk about is that China, um, I want to try to dispel this myth is that China has a military interest in, in the Pacific because from my observation and from all my engagement with the consular offices and the embassies there, and I barely see any officers from the national defense from China or anyone from military. At the moment, I don't see that um, coming. And I, I think at the moment, I think it's a lot more about being the media sometimes created a sound like um, myth in that. Because for all those times I've been there, I haven't seen. Um, of course, there are some general visits but they visit a lot of the countries in Southeast Asia, and then they do the sort of like a, like a stopover in Papua New Guinea, and then they go to other countries. So, um, I mean, like the military interest in that region um, 
I haven't observed that. And China's investment in, if you look at it, in Pacific is relatively small, like in numbers. And that's why it's so hard to get my paper published. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Yujia. I think you raised a really hot topic as that last issue, so I'm going to transition to another issue now. Uh, Hongwa. South-South cooperation has changed considerably since its resurgence this century, and China is really leading the way. Uh, this change by diversifying its partnerships to include civil society, to include uh, corporations, the private sector as well. Uh, the Asia Foundation is an international NGO uh, with a core program on China's global, global engagement. What's the working environment like in China for uh, an organization like ours, an, an international NGO that you know, has its headquarters in the US? And has this changed over time? Thank you, Anzia. And I want to say that I'm really, uh, really happy to be here. My first time in Australia, uh, first time at this conference. And so far, uh, the panels that I've heard the discussions, including from my Chinese colleagues uh, just now, have been really fascinating. Um, the operating environment for international NGOs in China, as many of you uh, may know, uh, has really evolved over time uh, with um, the main dividing line being the promulgation of the law on the management of uh, activities on mainland China by overseas international NGOs. Uh, which was uh, which happened in 2016. Uh, prior to that law, uh, the legal framework for international NGOs was incomplete. Uh, a handful of international NGOs received registration under the Ministry and Departments of Civil Affairs, but the rest mostly operated in a legal limbo, and some sought uh, commercial registration. So since the 2016 law, um, according to the law, registration uh, has become the responsibility of public security, while sponsorship needs to be secured uh, from an approved list of uh, quote-unquote professional supervisory units um, before an organization can be registered. Uh, once a rep office is set up, uh, this international NGO can operate uh, within approved program areas and in approved geographical uh, areas. Uh, or an unregistered international NGO uh, need to work with Chinese partners remotely, paying occasional visits, uh, on temporary activity approval uh, permits. And this is mostly the responsibility of the Chinese uh, cooperation partner. Um, since the uh, law in 2016 until the end of 2018, uh, 441 uh, rep representative office of offices of international NGOs have been set up, and um, about about uh, 1,300, close to 1,400 temporary activities uh, have been approved. Uh, the Asia Foundation has been working in China, uh, programming since 1979. Um, we have uh, have had a physical office and presence uh, since 1994. Uh, in June of 2017, about six months after uh, uh, the um, effective date of the law, we received our uh, legal registration, our Beijing representative office, and our president uh, paid a visit uh, soon after that. And it was a very 
joyful moment for the whole foundation <laughs> to be able to receive a formal legal status after so many years of working in China. Uh, I think over the years, especially uh, in the past decade, uh, the foundation's work has also uh, changed um, because China is quite different now compared to 1979 or even the 1990s. So we've evolved from focusing mainly on uh, domestic uh, programs, uh, working on Chinese uh, social and economic development issues and US-China-Asian relations to uh, working with Chinese partners and taking advantage of uh, the foundation's uh, network of 18 offices in Asia and our deep local, uh, local knowledge uh, to facilitate uh, greater mutual understanding um, and more responsible, uh, greater mutual understanding between China and the rest of Asia. Uh, and also more responsible Chinese behavior in Asia. Um, so more specifically, mm -hmm. uh, our global engagement uh, program uh, has focused on uh, three uh, main areas. One is providing specific, um, country-specific uh, community perspectives on how Chinese aid and investment is perceived in the Asian countries where China provides a huge number, amount of aid and investment. And second is to uh, try to help improve uh, China's uh, overseas investment behavior from environment, gender, community engagement, and governance angles. And the last part is uh, strengthening Chinese NGOs' capacity to provide uh, international humanitarian assistance when disasters happen in a foreign country, or, uh, and to build the capacity of Chinese NGOs to do long-term underground uh, development work in other parts of Asia. Thanks. Uh, just to pick up on your point about uh, the Asia Foundation's work with Chinese companies overseas, what is the Chinese government doing? We, you can t I want you to tell us a little bit more about what we've been doing, uh, or the Asia Foundation's been doing to work with companies to increase their social impact. But what does the Chinese government do to promote more sustainable Chinese investment related to the BRI or not? Um, Chinese government uh, encourages companies to take care of the communities where they work or invest, and this includes uh, communities in a foreign uh, country context where they're receiving Chinese aid and investment. Um, and this is mostly reflected in the many guidelines and uh, uh, manuals that have been produced by uh, the Chinese government on responsible investment, on CSR, uh, on social responsibility, um, and uh, these are mostly released uh, by government agencies or uh, industry associations uh, who, and a lot of the industry uh, guidelines uh, have the support of government ministries. Uh, for example, in 2013, uh, Ministry of Commerce, and uh, Ministry of Commerce was mostly managing overseas investment, and uh, Ministry of Environment um, jointly issued guidelines on environment protection in overseas investment and, and cooperation. Um, in terms of industry association, for example, 2014, the China Chamber of Commerce of Metals, Minerals, and Chemicals, Importers and Exporters, CCCMC, uh, issued uh, China guidelines for social responsibility in outbound mining investment. Um, well, some companies, uh, I think especially big state-owned enterprises, 
do pay attention to these guidelines and try to follow. Many more other Chinese companies uh, find it challenging uh, uh, in terms of meeting international sustainability uh, standards. Um, there's also the issue of uh, the lack of incentive for those other companies who uh, may not be uh, supervised by a government agency, uh, smaller companies, uh, private companies. Um, on the um, environment, so for example, on the environment impact of Chinese investment, uh, we're striving to help improve the environment standards, the ESGs, uh, of Chinese uh, policy banks, so that these banks can require a higher standards of Chinese companies, uh, working from the financing angle. On the social side, um, Chinese companies face challenges on community engagement. Um, traditionally, they have paid more attention to the recipient government, getting the buy-in, uh, working on the relations with uh, host country government, uh, then local communities. They don't tend to view communities as local communities as risks that they need to manage. Um, they also don't have a lot of experience or tools um, or personnel dealing with uh, community engagement or local uh, knowledge or experience working with local or Chinese NGOs to help them uh, do this. Now, um, with, there, there, ha there has been a lot of bad experience bad cases uh, that have been publicized both by international media and by uh, domestic media and by the government. And there's a growing realization within the uh, uh, corporate sector that they have to do better in terms of uh, community engagement. Uh, so the Asia Foundation has been working with uh, CSR consulting firms, uh, with industry associations to uh, produce community engagement uh, guidelines and manuals and provide training to companies. Um, at the same time, I think it's also very important uh, that Chinese NGOs can play a role working alongside with Chinese companies. So we've been, uh, in terms of you know, working overseas in a, in a foreign community, so we've been trying to build the capacity of Chinese NGOs uh, in this area as well. Uh, we jointly with Chinese partners developed the first ever operational manual for Chinese NGOs doing international work. Uh, we also recently completed a Nepal-specific manual for Chinese NGOs, so that when they go to Nepal, they know what, what the le local legal environment is for international NGOs, what, what the local labor standards are. We also uh, jointly with Chinese partners developed a code of conduct for Chinese NGOs working overseas. And this code of conduct actually uh, uh, draws heavily from the Australian code of conduct for uh, NGOs international work and the Korean equivalent uh, code of conduct. Uh, so I think NGOs can uh, play a growing, uh, increasingly important role in uh, uh, more responsible Chinese uh, uh, behavior mm -hmm. in other countries. Yeah, Thank, thanks Hongo. I think you know, your comments really reveal how diverse Chinese development cooperation is, how much it's changed uh, from the traditional, and now it would be almost stereotypical to say that it's just kind of government to government cooperation. It really has diversified and it's very inclusive, much more inclusive in its approach and looking at not only state-owned enterprises, but also private sector companies in China as well as Chinese civil society. Uh, there's lots of scope for capacity building, but it's, it's great to see that the Asia Foundation is working on that. 
So we have some time for questions. We're almost right on time. So um, I'd like to thank all our speakers for their comments and then open it up to the floor for questions. Okay, so I'm gonna give you a number, okay? So you don't forget, so one at the back, the man in blue. Anyone else? Two. Okay, one and two to start. <laughs> Please go ahead. We need, yes, the mic. Uh, yeah, right at the back there, Caitlin. Straight up the middle and at the back. Hi, um, I'm Duncan from the APNIC Foundation, the Internet Registry for the Asia Pacific. Thank you. It's a very interesting discussion. I have a question for all the panel, and it's around philanthropy in China and foundations. Um, we're aware of foundations in China, such as the China Internet Development Foundation, the Tencent Foundation, mm -hmm. that are starting to invest and make resources available around internet development, for example. Does the panel think the government is supportive of foundations like that investing outside of China, uh, such as large foundations in the US would invest in projects in Asia. Is there official government support and encouragement for foundations in China to invest outside China in development projects, in addition to official work, do you think? Thanks for your question. We'll take the second one. Just here. Hi there. My name's Jeremy Stringer. I work for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in the uh, in the aid program, uh, and most recently have been working in the private sector team as we look to ways to work with uh, business to unlock the potential um, to solve development problems as well as um, uh, achieve businesses' requirements of a sustainable development return. But my my question is really um, in relation to the to the last comments from the, the last speaker. Um, in regards to the government's, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, I didn't see, understand if it was the government's efforts to build capacity of NGOs in gender and environment and other areas like that, or if it was the Asia Foundation. Um, but, uh, and also the look of the government working beyond, uh, beyond NGOs as well into the private sector, and particularly the mentioning about uh, ESG standards and working with banks to raise those standards so that they expect higher standards of Chinese companies. Um, my question is, do the sustainable development goals come into that conversation in China in regards to the work on gender and environment with NGOs and in regards to ESG standards uh, and the work with banks? Thanks. I'll take one more. There is another question at the moment. Yeah, down here. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. It's really insightful. Um, in terms of you talked about um, reshaping or BRI 2.0, what are those regulations? What are those things that you want to put in place to improve Belt and Road Initiative, if you have an idea of those, whether they're environmental or other regulations around that, with a particular view to <clears throat> excuse me, how Australia is shaping up theirs? It's obviously some lessons that could be learned. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Okay. So the first question was on philanthropy in China, Tencent Foundation, and how that's, how China's responding to that kind of overseas work. Who would like to take it? Anyone? Don't fight over it. <laughs> Go ahead, Julie. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Um, actually, when talking about NGO in China, uh, it's 
um, it's a long story. <laughs> As I mentioned in the 1980s, even my study when I was a student, my, basically my learning and my work also related to the NGO. But basically at that time, the NGO, China's NGO was supported by international organizations like the Ford Foundation huh? and, and the Asian Foundation later on. Um, but basically, recently, there are lots of changes happened because with the emerging middle class, so-called middle class in China, you know, those that be rich in China. So they are also very interested in set up the NGOs. But for the NGO going out to other countries, as far as I know, so there are also two scores. One score is um, the originally NGO which uh, worked in China previously, but now working in uh, Southeast Asia. So like, uh, as far as I know, like China Poverty Reduction uh, um, uh, what that? Foundation. Foundation. And, uh, and they are actually worked a lot uh, by providing humanitarian and also uh, disaster relief um, support in uh, Cambodia, Laos, and, uh, and I think they are currently they are number one. Previously, they also another one like uh, the Youth Foundation, but you know that internally because of some kind of uh, public debates on the relationship between the business and the uh, and the and the philanthropy. So then internally um, they stopped. Uh, because at that time, many Chinese criticized this organization. Uh, they said that they established uh, many pri uh, schools, uh, primary schools in Africa country. And uh, many public criticized that in China, there, we have so much number of uh, people in poverty. How would you use you know, such uh, resources in other country? And also, it's related to some kind of uh, uh, public affairs like showing off, you know, one daughter of some kind of a responsible person show off in the, in the social media about the lectures, bags or something. So that's the scandal. So then, unfortunately, it was stopped suddenly. It's a very a pity. But anyway, there are um, this, uh, I, think, uh, I think basically they are some NGOs working other countries, even though that is uh, it's just still in the process. It's not so many. And on the other side, there are also young students or young generations, like who born in 1980s, 1990s, uh, who were studies abroad, like both of them. And, and they established their NGOs in Kenya, like we know that China House. And um, they work very closely with local people and to, 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 to help others understand the Chinese business engagement there and also bring the Chinese to the Africa. Mm -hmm. So you can see these two approaches in China. Julie, just to, just to clarify, I think the question um, was about the, pri the private, private support and how, if, whether the government supports uh, private funds for NGOs to work outside China, funds like from Tencent Foundation and other sources. You covered it. Okay. <laughs> Did you want to add anything? Thank you. Um, uh, uh, Professor Xu just now mentioned the uh, uh, development of the philanthropic sector in China, and it's uh, mm -hmm. indeed growing very rapidly. You mentioned uh, Tencent uh, Foundation. Uh, we uh, had a five-year project that recently ended, looking at how to strengthen the capacity of Chinese foundations to become better grant makers. 
And the reason why we're doing this for five years was uh, about five years ago, we were seeing this trend of uh, uh, wealthy individuals and private companies set up foundations. Um, and about five years ago, the number of Chinese foundations was around 3,000. Five years later, by the time we were ending the project, there's over 7,000 Chinese foundations. Uh, so the sector has grow, uh, grown very rapidly. Uh, but in terms of their uh, overseas work, uh, working as an international NGO, working in other countries, uh, the number is still very limited. Uh, Professor Xu just now mentioned the China Poverty Alleviation Foundation is one of the uh, forerunners of uh, Chinese NGOs doing this. Uh, mostly, uh, they receive their funding support actually from the general public or from uh, private, uh, uh, the private sector, the corporate sector. Um, in terms of, uh, especially when they are out there in a foreign country providing humanitarian assistance, uh, they're actually able to raise uh, a, a fairly big amount of money uh, through the internet, uh, facilitated by uh, platforms like Tencent. Uh, uh, to raise money for uh, disaster assistance. Uh, in terms of government support, um, if you look at uh, five years ago, there was very little articulation even from the Chinese government in terms of involving non-state actors, involving uh, NGOs in international development cooperation or foreign aid. Uh, but this has also gradually changed in the past five years. Um, <clears throat> Uh, President Xi Jinping uh, mentioned uh, at the uh, C20 in, in Qingdao a couple of years ago that uh, the government would like to see more uh, NGO participation. But when you talk about actual funding, uh, that's still very uh, rare, very little. Yeah, a pilot project by uh, Poverty Levy. Yeah, uh, yeah, a pilot project uh, with money funding from Ministry of Commerce to the Poverty Alleviation Foundation to manage uh, uh, overseas volunteers program, Chinese volunteers going to uh, other countries. Uh, but I think when we talk about uh, funding support for NGOs doing international work, we probably should mention the South South uh, uh, Cooperation Assistance Fund. Uh, announced by uh, President Xi Jinping in 2015 at the UN, and uh, later uh, he added more money to it in 2017 at the BRI Forum. So the total commitment into the fund is three billion US dollars, and a lot of it is supposed to be supporting the involvement of Chinese uh, civil society organizations in international development cooperation work. Uh, but uh, I think it's still going to take time. Uh, for the government, especially with the uh, newly established uh, agency uh, who's going to be managing this fund to set up uh, procedures, uh, um, evaluation mechanisms of um, NGOs and CSOs that they are comfortable giving funding to. So uh, the South South Cooperation Assistance Fund is not, uh, there's no money going from the fund right now to Chinese NGOs yet, but we hope to see that coming. Uh, in the months to come. Thanks. It seems like the UN is benefiting a lot from the South-South Cooperation yeah, Assistance yeah. Fund. The first uh, the uh, couple of dozen projects yeah. uh, uh, supported by the fund are, uh, have all gone to UN agencies. Okay. Hongwa, can you continue and answer the next question as well that was about uh, ESG? Um, who's building the capacity of NGOs? Is it, is it Asia Foundation or is, is the government doing some of that? I think you've touched on it already. Yeah. 
Uh, when I mentioned and the SDGs, uh, sorry. Yeah, when I mentioned uh, you know strengthening the gender environment. Uh, uh, governance aspects of Chinese overseas investment. Uh, it was mostly about the Asia Foundation's work. Uh, but um, um, as an international NGO working in China, and I think it's the same philosophy, philosophy that we follow everywhere, everywhere we work, uh, our work is based, uh, by, based on and driven by uh, local demand. And we work closely with uh, uh, like-minded uh, partners in the in in the country, uh, so uh, we're seeing, uh, for example, a growing interest and demand uh, from Chinese partners, uh, from uh, policy banks to industry associations to companies uh, to say we would like more help, we would like more assistance on better understanding of uh, ESGs, and particularly also. Uh, experiences uh, and procedures from um, MDBs on how uh, ESGs uh, have been implemented. So for example, you have all these standards, but structurally within the MDB, uh, how, does, how do you make sure it actually works? It's actually being implemented and incorporated in all the different steps of, uh, of financing. So we're seeing a lot of demand uh, from the different uh, actors. Uh, within China on these uh, improved standards. Yeah. Was your que second question about SDGs? Yeah, whether, yeah. Those, whether the, those standards are being linked to the Sustainable Development Goals, and, and I think a broader question whether the SDGs are mm -hmm. um, uh, actively seen as, as well mm -hmm. within the Chinese development. Yeah. Um, for Chinese companies, um, you would rarely see them um, or hear them uh, mentioning uh, the SDGs. Um, even multinational companies operating in China uh, rarely talk about SDGs. They probably mention uh, SDG alignment in their CSR report, but um, I, I think it's, um, it's understandable. I mean, they have to be able to associate uh, SDGs to their uh, business uh, practices and a lot of times it's very difficult for uh, companies who are not experts on policy and framework and goals to, to be able to associate uh, that. Um, and sometimes when uh, uh, the, the limited number of Chinese companies do talk about SDGs, um, it's more for branding. So they have a big event with UNDP and they say we are um, associating where business uh, practices and results with uh, the SDGs. But overall, uh, the, uh, the use of SDGs not very high within the corporate sector. Mm -hmm. that, I think that's quite distinct from the government's approach. I mean, China has really embraced the SDGs through the BRI and it was very active on the SDGs at a multilateral level as well, but it's uh, taking some time to sort of filter through to the private sector. Thanks, Thanks to both of you for those answers, quite comprehensive. Um, Jaehan, on BRI 2.0, <laughs> so okay. what's, uh, what's in store? <laughs> Thank you for your question. And the first thing I want to say, it seems like you are over-interpreting what I'm saying. <laughs> I would say we're reshaping it, and I would say it's 2.0. It, it sounds too big. It just, 
What, what I said, just th those like summit or working conferences are those on a regular basis. Say the working conferences uh, was held on a, every half year. It's a regular meeting. And the summit is every two years. And it will be one of the, the, the most regular like mag working mechanisms. So I'm not saying we're reshaping it. I think we're making it better. And because we'll, like for the past five years, we're in the initial stage. And that, that here I want to explain a little bit more on the newcomer thing. Mm -hmm. And because like before, from my understanding, we're more like recipients. And we, we, are, we never took the lead. Like here, we, were, we are trying to, to take the lead to create a platform that everyone can get into the platform and share the benefits. But the thing is, for the past 40 years during the China's development, China has never done the thing before. And so I don't think we, we, we don't have enough experience on this, but we do have enormous experience on infrastructure construction, which China has benefited a lot. That's why China wants to share it with the BRI countries who are in the most need of this one. So, so that's what I'm saying. Uh, regarding how to improve the standard, as I just said, we love to work with the MDBs and we love to work with advanced countries. And say the, uh, another thing, it's like say, we, there was a new institute that founded by China and we, uh, with IMF, and those, the institute is specifically training like government officials from BRI countries regarding their financial sustainability and regarding their capacity building stuff. So that, that's an angle and we're working with the MDBs. And another thing I want to say, it's um, we try to maintain or get the high standard and international rules. We want to also want to emphasize we want to be country driven. It's a lot of BRI countries, they're all developing countries. And we want to, the projects in their most need and to satisfy their demands. So we have to balance here, I guess. So here maybe Australia can be involved to provide your wisdom in this, how to be, fit the international standard and be more country driven. And we would love to hear your experience in this. Thank you. We have still a little bit of time, so are there any more questions? One and two. Yeah, thank you very much for all the panelists. It's very insightful and it's good to see my fellow Chinese here to present. Um, so my name is Ching Rei. I'm from International uh, Council for Voluntary Organizations, basically a global network for NGOs um, in humanitarian uh, field. So my question would be really related to the uh, engagement of NGOs uh, with the new SIDCAR. Uh, so I really wanted to know your perspective on this because I actually had a mission two weeks ago in Beijing and I had a few conversations with uh, uh, stakeholders there, um, particularly from the NGO side. So I think at the moment, because you know, the SIDCAR is taking uh, time to shape up their policies and uh, the future plans, and I think the NGOs have a lot of expectations and also a lot of guesses on you know, what could be the possible approach for the new uh, ministries uh, to engage them. So I really want, because you are all insiders in one way, so I really wanted to know, you know what's your um, perspective or your 
observation on that. Thank you. Okay, and one more, sorry, make you run over there. Do you want to take that one, Julie? Do you want to? Okay, this is the last question. Thank you. Um, just wanted to hear the panel's thoughts on the, um, no, we haven't mentioned the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank yet, um, and where that fits in relation to the Asian Development Bank and BRI. Um, just hear a few comments or thoughts on that. And we're talking a bit about integration um, of you know, um, Australian organisations and businesses with BRI um, in the Chinese aid program. Is there any advice you've got for Australian businesses or small organisations to get involved in the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank or BRI program? Okay. Julie, do you want to take the question on SIDCA and NGOs? What will the approach be? Um, thank you for your question. Actually, one of the uh, benefits I came here is the, you know, the, the uh, important role of an NGO in the city cars future operation. Actually, uh, the rules on regulations or the approaches for the uh, South South Corporation Fund has been uh, published, I think, you know, um, what time last year? And you have uh, already found that in the website. And in, when you read it carefully, it emphasizes so much about social organizations and international organizations about, uh, for the future you know, candidates. So when you're talking about social organizations in China's context, it, would, it should and it must include the NGOs. And because as you know that uh, the regulation was issued by Minister of Commerce, and now the new CIDICA has come up. So it's um, obviously, it's lots of work has been done. And if you pay attention to the, to the public WeChat platform of CITICA, you can see in the last year, there are lots, lots of visiting from multilateral organizations, bilateral organizations, NGOs, you know, mutual cross visits to CITICA, uh, you know, showing hands, take pictures together, sign mem <laughs> memorandums, all the works. And this is uh, good, you know, just for us to understand what's going on. And also, uh, but these things is just a kind of establishment to tell you that it's in the progress. But it didn't tell you what they really talk and what's really, what's really folks. And they, but you can mention, so through the last year, I would call it a year of, uh, of establishment and also to get familiar what, what really would be doing. So this is a very key um, point that uh, get lots of uh, suggestions from outside, from expertise to, to let them know that what will be do, what will be proper. So I, I, I was suppose even yesterday I consulted some of my key informants uh, related to this uh, job and uh, they say it's still in the process. As Hongbo uh, uh, also mentioned, they will get the procedures to make them comfortable to see you know, how to work. But I want to mention another aspect of the NGO work story is in China's internally development. Um, now, the heated debate for NGO uh, involvement in development is what kind of expertise, particularly very strong expertise, comparative advantage of NGO in providing development uh, domestically and internationally. Yeah. Uh, for example, in China now, the biggest strategy internally is poverty alleviation. 
And so, but uh, you know, uh, we can we, we can still use lots of gender balance or good governance or environmental sustainable development. You know, all those we are very all those narratives we are very familiar with. But uh, technically, and uh, how to provide a, a, a training? How to communicate with officials? How to communicate with local communities? If they really highly uh, play a catalyst role. Um, so that's, that would be the future way in China's domestic, domestic uh, NGO development. So, so I think it also fits in the uh, overseas engagement. Okay, thank, I'm going to go to the next question because we're running out of time, but oh, thank sorry. you. No that's, no, that's fine. Um, on the AIB question, you're right, we didn't talk about AIB. It is linked to the BRI. So I want to give both of you an opportunity to answer the question, one, about what is, where does the AIB fit into the BRI? But also, um, Yujia, do you have any ideas about how Australian business can be more involved, perhaps, in, in the Pacific? <laughs> Under the, um, with uh, the cooperation with the Belt and Road Initiative? Or otherwise, yeah, with um, China. I think Australia has already signed up to the BRI with China on the trilateral um, cooperation. So mm -hmm. not in Australia, but like China and Australia could cooperate in a third party country. Mm -hmm. I think Australia has signed that MOU with China. So I definitely see that there could be uh, cooperation. And also I think if, um, if BRI is branded or like conceived as a, or interpreted by um, by the outside that it's a, it's a government initiative. But then I think if you look at the private sectors that's, merge, uh, that's merging, emerging from the China um, and then moving to the Pacific, then I think there could be a lot of opportunities for Australia, um, companies, um, private sectors. And also I have learned that um, uh, when, I, when I was in Formosby, when I met this government officials from China, and he's asking me, "Do you know any consultants um, from Australia that could give us some advice about operating, help our business to set up in Papua New Guinea?" Because a lot of those companies come from China to going in Papua New Guinea. Um, they are willing to learn, and they are willing to um, get the experience and the expertise from the previous the partners that are already been there for many years and they actually value that. So I think yes there's cooperation and there's um, there's opportunity. Thanks. Jingham on AIB. I'll take the AIB question. Um, well it's it's been I think it's been three years since it's established and it's it's running very well from my observation. And so China plays a role in the bank as uh, the stakeholder as other MDBs. So like um, we are seeing AIIB as a partnership. We're trying to build partnership in for the BRI, just like World Bank, ADB, and they're all the same for us. And so I, when I mentioned we're creating a diversified financial system, we're considering those MDBs as a very important channel, like financial resources, because they have uh, they have built a strong project database and they have uh, really 
uh, good projects that can be funded together. So they're doing all, all this together, like parallel investment or all kinds of uh, ways to, to all kinds of cooperations. But uh, one thing I want to mention is uh, I think AIB has more than 90 members countries right now, and a lot of them are BRI countries. So definitely there are a lot of areas that China and AIB can cooperate in the future in many ways. And another thing regarding a small business channel, I think, and we have, uh, we have country offices from Ministry of Commerce in all the countries. So I think if the company wants to get involved into the BRI project, they can either directly go to the, the, the country office or there is the official website on the Belt and Road Initiative in English. And we are building a project database as well. And well, it, it's still in a progress and we're collecting data and we're trying to improving it. And, but uh, it's all on the website and I think small businesses or other institutional investors, if you are interested in, you can just get on the website and looking for the projects you're interested in. Thank you. Thank you. Hope that answered all of the questions. Thanks very much to all our panelists. I'm going to try to sum up some of the general conclusions in about the, the last minute before we break. Um, on the BRI, uh, your explanation was, was so clear. I think what it revealed to us is that the BRI is very much an initiative and not a strategy. Uh, China is really taking the lead in creating a, an economic platform and is inviting and opening the door for others to collaborate, participate, not just from the public sector in other countries, but also private sector as well, as well as uh, civil society participation. So, you know, come on down and get, get involved, uh, seems to be the message. Uh, in terms of the infrastructural, um, the architecture, for development cooperation in China. That's also changing uh, as the scope of uh, China's cooperation increases. Uh, we have SIDCA, we have your, your new institute as well. Uh, I think you can see that China is devoting time and resources and energy into trying to work out uh, a collaborative partnership amongst different organizations uh, to manage, uh, manage the resources. But it's still very complex. Um, in the Pacific, there's definitely scope, I think, and willingness for cooperation with other countries, particularly Australia. Um, I really like your suggestion, you know, China, if China builds the road, with, will Australia come and maintain it? That's not a bad idea uh, to think about for Belt and Road Partnership down the road. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then lastly, around partnerships, I think we talked a lot about NGOs and private sector, and you can really see how China is demonstrating in word and deed how South-South Corporation has changed so much. It really is about diverse partnerships uh, with the private sector, with civil society, that really defines, I think, what we all mean by uh, beyond aid uh, and, and uh, development cooperation in the 21st century. So thank you so much to our entire panel, and thank you for the audience. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>